and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. Here on Breakpoints, we've done several COVID-related episodes, all of which are probably very out of date at this point, but I still encourage you to check them out if you're interested. Uh, And today, we're talking about COVID yet again. Like many of you, I'm bummed that this is something we still have to talk about in daily conversations, but I'm very excited for our guest today and the unique perspective she brings on a side of this pandemic that many of us may not get to see, the effect of COVID in the community pharmacy realm. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today, Jennifer Morrow. Dr. Morrow recently left chain pharmacy management to be a staff pharmacist for Browns and Weiss Community Pharmacies. She also coordinates the Pizza Is Not Working efforts in New York, as well as serves as a chairperson for two nonprofits, Lyme Cares and Farm Evolution. Jennifer has a bachelor's in microbiology, a PharmD, and an MBA. She's been nerdily excited about living through a pandemic since she'd studied them for years. Welcome, Jen. Thanks so much, Rachel. I'm excited to do this. So COVID has been and continues to be a roller coaster that I wish I could get off of. But inpatient providers like me aren't the only ones who have whiplash from the ever-changing clinical and political landscape that makes up COVID recommendations. Community pharmacies have had to deal with administering vaccines on top of their normal workload, handling controversial prescriptions for ineffective therapies, and most recently dispensing new oral agents for early COVID treatment, all while struggling with severe workforce burnout and bearing the brunt of patient frustrations as the most accessible healthcare provider. So Jen, my first question to you is, how are you? How are outpatient pharmacists and technicians? Are they okay? We live day by day. Um, some days are great. You have those one patient, you know, comes in and just makes your day by saying thanks. Um, and then there are other days where the workload is unbearable. Um, there's more to do than anybody can possibly do. And you try not to take it home with you. Yeah, I bet that's been really difficult at times during this whole past two years now of this whirlwind. Uh, But let's go back to the beginning of the two years and the beginning of COVID. Well, I guess mainly like a year ago with the vaccines. They were the first major therapeutic to hit the community pharmacy sector. Tell me what that was like when the vaccines were first announced. Oh, it's super exciting. I mean, we actually get to do something about a pandemic for the first time in human history there's nothing better as you know a healthcare professional than being able to do that. Um, I loved it when patients would be like, oh, I don't know if I want to get the vaccine. And I'm like, it's okay. We're all part of the largest human medical experiment. Uh, now you're just going to be part of the control group. So you know, wherever you sit on that fence, I'm okay with it. But you don't pretend that you're not part of this. The next best thing was that we got to go into nursing homes. And it was the first time that I ever seen um, a vaccine in, in action. So many nursing homes had one or two cases, wasn't a big deal. Everybody's excited to get it. They might get to see their family again. These are people who are isolated and hadn't seen the people they loved in almost an entire year. So they were so excited to get the vaccine. And one nursing home I went into was in Elmira, New York, a 350 bed facility and almost 50% of all the residents had COVID. We walk in with a vaccine. The staff is petrified. They do not know if they want the vaccine or not. They know they're watching their residents die or suffer. And we went in with not a ton of information, 
but consent forms talked over with family, with residents, with staff, you know, where you can get this vaccine. So many of the staff didn't know if they had been exposed. When we went back three weeks later, because it was at the course of the beginning with the Pfizer vaccine, uh, went back three weeks, there was one single resident case of COVID. The vaccine literally shut down that outbreak. It was amazing. Wow, that's such a great story. And I, I mean, going back to the residents who haven't seen their family in so long, I know I had um, an elderly grandparent that had to be admitted to the hospital um, for a long period of time during the COVID pandemic. And I remember being terrified that he was going to pass away alone in a hospital because we, no one was allowed to visit him and he was confused and he was scared. And I know some of our SIDP members have also been affected in this way with um, their loved ones living in facilities and not being able to see them for an even longer period of time. So I agree with you that the introduction of these vaccines is really miraculous in that way. Um, and it can really improve mental health for those residents as well as their physical health. Uh, but in the community pharmacy side too, how did the introduction of those vaccines affect their workflow and what were some of the major challenges or still are some of the major challenges? Oh yeah. So, you know, after the nursing homes, we, you know, got approval to be able to get them in the vaccine. I was very excited. Our store was going to be the first one to offer, um, the Moderna vaccine. We had clinics scheduled 200 patients per day. I had patients driving three, four hours um, to get to our facility to be able to get their vaccine. But to give 200 vaccines in a day, we were slotted at every, it means you have to jab somebody every five minutes at the, at the maximum. At the minimum, you're trying to do it every three minutes. To take staff from our pharmacy and immediately almost double it was uh, difficult to say the least. Um, I understand the corporate challenges of doing those sort of things. So I don't want to, you know, put that on, on the corporation itself, but you just technicians, pharmacists, any immunizer, they are trained professionals. You cannot just create these people out of thin air. A good technician takes two years to train. So you just say, you know what, we're going to hire people that does not necessarily help in that situation. So it was rough uh, staffing and very quickly as people who were working overtime or whatnot did start to experience some burnout, we had less and less staff. So we still have just mm -hmm. as much demand with less staff. So, I mean, that's going to weigh on management and I don't know if you've noticed, but pharmacists tend to be what we call people pleasers. We want to do a great job. We really want people to be happy with what we do. And we don't let people see what we're struggling with. That actually hit psychologically our staff probably harder than anything else because they're mm -hmm. trying to do everything they can. And people, of course, are very upset and they're very fearful, right? We forget sometimes the psychological impact of a pandemic and all of that fear comes out at a pharmacy. Unfortunately, sometimes in a chain in environment or even sometimes community pharmacies, uh, people feel like everything should be immediate. Where in a hospital or, or doctor's office, they may have a little more patience, understand wait times are going to be a little bit longer. So at a pharmacy, when they have to wait 15 minutes, that expectation um, really impacts uh, the workflow and uh, patient interactions. So at first we had the clinics, right? They were completely separate from what we normally did in the pharmacy. We were able to separate 
uh, space for the vaccines versus people coming to come pick up their prescriptions. But as the pandemic waned on and patients uh, didn't come in quite as often, we would then have to do what we call integrate those vaccines into workflow meaning the pharmacist who's also checking your prescription and answering the phone and calling the doctors is also the one giving the vaccines. This means that you're task switching more often and in task switching, errors are more likely. Um, so this became very difficult in the pharmacy culture to make sure that everything is still correct because you know we're the pharmacists, we're the safety net. We are the last line of defense before those errors reach a patient so many things, you just don't need those or don't want those interruptions to be able to make sure that everybody's prescriptions and healthcare needs are met. Um, so, and that became even harder on technicians because in the pharmacy, the pharmacist is basically the bottleneck to the workflow. And if the technicians don't have access to the pharmacist to do the tasks that need to be done in the right order, the technicians can no longer do their job efficiently. So you add in COVID testing. So then you have one person who's always doing COVID testing, um, which is very interesting. I got to see many different stores from our store who would be like, hey, Rachel, we're glad to see you. This is your testing kit. This is how you're going to do it. To I was at a couple of chain pharmacies where they would like, here, Rachel, there's a the paper bag. You basically swab your nose, put it in the box and leave. <laughs> so <laughs> many people got a very different experience. Um, depending on what store you went to. But that, you know, really got to the point where as a supervising pharmacist, you're responsible for the safety of your store. That responsibility does not sit with the chain pharmacies called the permit holders. So it doesn't sit with CVS, doesn't sit with Walgreens. It sits with me or you. And that is really important. But corporate culture doesn't allow us to do anything. I couldn't add extra staffing more than the schedule allowed me to. So the, you know, software, if it didn't, if that software wasn't fit within 90% of optimization, I wasn't allowed to add any extra shifts, even though I knew we needed them. And then we would see that those hours would be added on like Thursday afternoon. Well, you get to that point, can't really add staff between, nobody's going to want to work Friday and Saturday. So that's always fun. So you start complaining to your board of pharmacy. And whether it's me as a supervising pharmacist, my staff pharmacist, or patients, board of pharmacies mostly only protect public health. So they are there to make sure that the profession, the professionals are doing their profession, but not to regulate CVS and Walgreens. In doing so, there are representatives on the board of pharmacy who have associations with many of those chain pharmacies. And what we saw as these things were becoming unsafe and we started issuing complaints to Board of Pharmacy, the, the, there would be uh, retaliation from the chain pharmacy to those pharmacists, making their job uncomfortable or moving them from their home store to other stores or in other roles so that they didn't have basically a reason to complain. And that's where uh, Pizza's Not Working started, is that these things were no longer safe and just management buying pizza did not solve the problems that were happening within our pharmacies. Wow. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I worked retail when I was in pharmacy school and before that for about five years. And we sometimes struggled to even get the prescriptions out every week 
that we had with the amount of technician and intern help that we had, I could not imagine doing a whole another mega, basically mega flu vaccine clinic all the time on top of your normal daily workflow. So that sounds extremely challenging. Pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare provider for many people. Pharmacies are everywhere and pharmacists are in them. Were you guys getting a lot of patient questions about different therapies, about the vaccines? Were you getting um, a lot of positivity, a lot of negativity? What was that like? I mean, yeah, there's, and this has been covered to death probably um, so many places that, you know, I want my family member to get this. Um, as the pandemic went on and uh, vaccines were available, mandates started, I would have somebody drag a spouse into the pharmacy. And when they found out that they were there for a vaccine, they were like, no, I'm not getting this. And I'm like, I have consent forms signed online. It's up to you, but <laughs> it's, it's already ready. On top of vaccines, we also this year got some effective and also maybe not so effective oral therapies for COVID, which was also great. But then that brought its own significant challenges, like availability of those agents, drug interactions, renal dose adjustments. How have uh, community pharmacies felt these challenges and how are those being handled? That's a great question. Um, so not every community pharmacy has access to these oral um, antiviral medications for COVID. It's really important that you know, so as a hospital system, you know, you may know where your scripts go typically, um, but often our hospital pharmacists are not aware because those patients are admitted. They're, they're sick enough to be admitted, so they're not getting these oral medications. Um, here in kind of a rural port part of New York, we only see about one to two of prescriptions for Paxlovid uh, per week. Um, it adds a lot of extra work to our workflow uh, because usually they're a new patient. You need their entire profile. They're sick. Um, so they have a caregiver, hopefully coming to get the prescription for them. <laughs> hopefully is right. And then uh, on top of, you know, actually ordering the medication, having it in stock when you need it, then there's the billing and dispensing fees. So we're having to add the insurance for the patient. Only half of the insurances actually have the, this medication in their formulary. So most of them are not even paying for it anyway. So we're just handing it out for free. Um, so it's a, it's a very big undertaking, but it's worth it, right? So, I mean, it's, it's important as a healthcare provider to be doing this, but it hasn't been made easy yet. Yes, and talking about giving away the drug for free, even when the drug is purposely free from the drug companies, like some of them have been, not having the drug in the insurance system still causes major problems because you need that structure on the insurance side built out to get the pharmacist dispensing fee, tech time, cost of any extra materials and other related costs paid for. So even though the drug itself is free under the EUA, we can't bill for the service of giving the free med because EUAs are usually ahead of payers updating their systems with the right information. This is a really big problem for pharmacies and pharmacists because reimbursement for fees and service is what allows us to expand access and care for our patients. It's also why pharmacy organizations are fighting so hard to get provider status for pharmacists at the state and federal levels so we can get paid for our services as healthcare providers and then use that to further expand pharmacy services and patient care. Back to Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, how reliable was your supply? Like, were you getting consistent 
doses in or you had no idea when you were going to get them or how many you were going to get? It's better now, but it started, we had like two uh, packs and then um, when we dispensed one, it would reorder. So it might be three or four days. So if we had too many come in, um, then we didn't, didn't have the doses we needed at the time, we'd have to push them to another facility, which of course is, is, there are a lot of them. They're just, it's still like, you still have somebody who's sick, right? You don't want to be driving 15, 20 minutes to the next place that's available. And hopefully they have doses. Um, so, you know, you're calling around for the patient, making sure that, you know, you're doing that sort of thing and taking care of them. Um, it's about- interesting though. Yeah. The doctors, uh, they don't know what they're, pre- they know the meds out there. They don't really know what it is. Um, so they just call and almost always we're taking phone scripts instead of having them sent in because some of the providers don't even have it loaded into their prescribing software. So it, they'll just call, they'll ask about dosing and we'll go from there. You did ask about dose adjustment for like renal um, under 60 uh, for the glomerular filtration rate. Um I, I actually haven't seen that happen. Most of the patients that are getting this medication um, don't necessarily have kidney problems. M- most of them are, are even young, uh, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, if they have other problems that lead that, you know, they're in kidney failure, those sort of things, most of the time they're already in the hospital by the time we see them. Oh, interesting. What about uh, drug interaction checking? We know Paxlovid, specifically the ritonavir, can wreak havoc on a lot of important medications. Uh, and so are the, is that being monitored for in the community setting? It's very frustrating. I mean, we try. And luckily, especially the independent uh, community pharmacy that I work at has the time to do this. Um, but you do have to manually get their med list from either their other pharmacy or from the patient or, or caregiver, because usually they're a new patient, we're adding them in new. So we don't, we have to manually go through and ask, you know, are you on any MAOIs, those sort of fun things, um, just to make sure that it's okay. And then half the time, we'll even call the doctor and say, can you give us a med list? Are you okay with this? Will they be monitored? Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, time intensive, but it is worth it. Yeah. And it's great to have something oral that uh, you can stop by your community pharmacy and have someone pick it up for you. Like you said, these patients are sick and so they don't want to be driving around or having to call a whole bunch of places. They just want to feel better and get better. And just like with Tamiflu, right? It is time dependent. So we need to get it to them as quickly as possible to make any difference anyway. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Okay, I have a real question for you. Estimation, how many patients that were positive for COVID have shown up at your counter to pick up a script? So many, like I can't even tell you how many. Uh, It was a very interesting uh, time all through the pandemic. You know, you had people come in for testing and I can't tell you how many times they would pass very large signs on the way into the pharmacy, one in the parking lot, one right by the door, run it right inside of the door that all said testing is only through the drive through. And yet they still all walk through the pharmacy. Um, we try to spray Lysol after them as they leave. <laughs> I can't imagine that's that comforting though. Like how scary and how stressful when you're already uh, working under a severely higher workload than you're used to. Right. There was a lot of relief when the vaccines came out. 
just at any small barrier makes a big difference when you're confronted with it constantly. Speaking of stressful situations, the other aspect of COVID that I imagine has been felt more heavily in the community setting is the controversial oral therapies that were, have been brought about all throughout these two years, like hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and ivermectin. Uh, how have these affected the workflow in community pharmacies and the perception of pharmacists in the public sector? I actually am really grateful that this has come up because it's brought forth a discussion of what professional roles pharmacists fit in, especially community pharmacists. I love community pharmacy. I'm very passionate about it. I thought for sure when I you know, did my rotations for school, I was going to be a clinical pharmacist. And I organized my rotations, got lots of time in the hospital and found I was bored to tears within days. I cannot sit still that long. I cannot sit through that many meetings. And I love <laughs> that, you know, a doctor will say, oh, I saw 20 or 22 patients today. And for a doctor, that is a lot of patients. I don't wish them to see that many patients, but in community pharmacy, I get to see 300 patients a day. I get to go through that many profiles. So it's, for me, it's exciting and it's constantly interesting and there's always something new. Um, so what this has done, this question of ivermectin has reminded us what training we go through as pharmacists. Like we do some of the same things that med schools do. We have lots of medical training that make us a great person to be that healthcare provider that is needed in almost any situation. Um, and it's really hard because when you're on the news, right, all this information about pharmacies, you either show somebody getting a vaccine or somebody counting pills on a tray. So it's kind of nice mm -hmm. to actually have a place to have this discussion. So the big question of ivermectin have, have, you know, we experience this absolutely. <laughs> Whether it's people coming to the counter and saying that they want to buy ivermectin without a prescription. Um, if I had patients who had been uh, gone to online appointments with physicians and had prescriptions written for ivermectin um, to people like, I can't believe people are eating horse dewormer. Um, so don't forget hydroxychloroquine, right? When people ate the fish tank cleaning tablets to get their hydroxychloroquine and of course overdosed on it. So we have the same problem. It's really important professionally to know that we need to use medications in off-label uses, whether it's you know ivermectin or, or other things, because some disease states have not been studied enough and that we're actually trying to move medicine forward. Protocols are great, right? Evidence-based medicine. But when you get to a point where a patient can't be helped with where we are, we need to still explore other ways while doing very little harm if possible. So as a pharmacist, when somebody comes in with an ivermectin prescription, I counsel, hey, this is what's going to happen. You know, if you had been exposed or if you knew you were going into an area where you were going to be exposed and you wanted to try this, like once I'm, I'm okay with, I'm going to counsel you, but you come in for this, you know, week after week and month after month, this is no longer safe for you. And I've got a stack of papers that if you want to read them, that's fine, but I will refuse your prescription. And I think it's very, very dangerous that some states are now putting in possible laws forcing us to dispense medications um, against our professional judgment. You see this every day. There's sometimes where doctors will prescribe something. And um, one of my best examples I have is I had a provider, a walk-in provider, and he wanted to use Bactrim for a tooth infection. And so I called and had a discussion with him. 
He said, no, he definitely wanted Bactrim, that it was an underused antibiotic and that it, it will work for the situation. So of course I counseled the patient um, and said, if you are not better by in 24 hours, if you are not seeing some sort of relief, I want you to find another provider. She waited until Monday morning. At this point, her face is very swollen and um, she can barely move her jaw. And so it's very important to not always be forced to, to prescribe, you know, to dispense something that can harm a patient or not help them. And so this was one of those times where I really wish I had another provider available to help this patient. Yeah, Bactrim definitely is not going to cover some of those oral flora. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what some of this legislation that's been in, uh, introduced by these states is? Yeah, some of them. Um, it's interesting. New Hampshire has even um, gone as far as saying not only should pharmacists dispense this, but pharmacists can now prescribe it if a patient has a positive COVID test. So somewhat similar to the, the thought with Paxlovid that pharmacists will administer a COVID test. If it comes back positive, they then have prescriptive authority to um, dispense Paxlovid or I'm going to mispronounce it. I know Molinavir. Monopiravir. What you said. <laughs> um, and uh, to, to let us, you know, dispense that, New Hampshire has gone as far as saying that we should also be able to dispense ivermectin in those same cases. I mean, like you said earlier, where pharmacists and even technicians too receive special training. We as pharmacists have doctoral degrees in medication management. We are medication experts to, to try to regulate our professional mindset is just very interesting. I, I found that to be an interesting thing that's been playing out lately. Uh, so luckily, Florida actually ruled uh, against in an appeals court that you can't force ivermectin prescribing or dispensing. Um, there was a woman who wanted her husband to have ivermectin while in the hospital. She actually sued the hospital to dispense it to him. Um, and there was a ruling for that to happen. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away before there was um, uh, any resolution. And the appeals court did overturn that and said, no, you cannot force a pres prescriber or a pharmacist to dispense medication when they don't believe that it is the right course of action. Well, that's an encouraging ruling on that front. And earlier you brought up um, the test to treat initiative. So I want to talk about that for a bit and also the PrEP Act, which um, in September 2021, the PrEP Act was expanded to include pharmacists and technicians as approved providers for ordering and administering COVID therapies. Um, and the test to treat initiative was introduced a few weeks ago at the State of the Union address, and that will allow patients to get tested for COVID at a pharmacy and then, if positive, receive free immediate antivirals. We now know this test to treat initiative only applies to locations that have been selected with on-site clinics, staffed with providers, or with nearby providers contracted to provide this service. Since pharmacists don't have provider status, they're not included in the professionals that can prescribe antivirals through test to treat. Uh, what's your opinion of these programs and their outlook on community pharmacies? So I love any time that we can provide a service that helps our community. Making sure that we have the infrastructure to provide that service without being a detriment to the other things that we already do. 
is very, very important. And I think that that's where we're currently failing most community pharmacists. They are asked to do so much and they're not supported either with staffing or infrastructure or any you know, sort of corporate moral support either to, to make sure that these things are safe when we provide them. Um, making sure we get you know, medications to people that can help them. The nice thing about Paxlovid is while there are a lot of interaction, we can definitely help people get better faster. We all have talked or heard about long COVID. And if we can avoid that, that would be great. Do you think this kind of these kinds of initiatives, which do allow pharmacists um, to be more progressive in services they provide, uh, are feasible in the current community pharmacy model? I think they're absolutely feasible. I mean, we are capable of so much. We just can't do all of it at once. So as long as we have the proper staff, absolutely. I think this is definitely a place where we can help, you know, our patients more than anybody else can. Again, like you said, we're the most accessible ones. Let's do this. Do you think these programs and maybe future programs like it open the door for an expanded role of pharmacists and community pharmacies in the management of conditions outside of COVID-19? I sure hope they do. Um, one of the things that I, I love is, like I said, I, I love being in the community. I love seeing these you know, new um, patient profiles and like, what can I do to help them? And what has somebody else missed? So wouldn't it be great if we could actually like sit down and say, oh, Mrs. Smith, I see that you're on this and that. Like, how has this been going? What's been going on? What's your quality of life? More than ever, that's where our, our future is as community pharmacists. So if it's just helping them through a, a current illness, so if we can do a flu test or a strep test and know immediately that we need to do you know, antibiotics for strep and they don't have to go you know, through three steps, that would be great. Well, I want to wrap up here by asking you what our listeners and other pharmacists can do to help our community pharmacy colleagues. Is there anything on the inpatient side or wherever uh, we work, if you're not in a community pharmacist, that we can do to make it easier um, for you in the community setting? That is a great question. And I'm going to say every healthcare provider that has worked through this pandemic has gone through something emotionally, spiritually, professionally um, this past few years. So no, nobody should be left out. Um, but community pharmacists it took a lot of the brunt of this. So many have left the profession. Um, in my area, the community pharmacists that are left in the chains uh, are so, um, besides being burnt out, I believe there was a, a new survey that just came out. It said 75% of all community pharmacists do not feel that they are providing care in a safe manner. That is terrifying. It is why I left the chain pharmacy. And in doing so, I knew I left people that I hold dear to take up the extra amount of work that I left behind because there's nobody left to fill that gap. With that, um, is, you know, can you as an inpatient pharmacist, is there something you can do today? Maybe yes, maybe no. Biggest thing is please just help us. Many community pharmacists feel scared to speak out. The chain pharmacies have done a great job of controlling the information so that they don't know where to go, how to go. So many community pharmacists don't have a voice. 
the chain pharmacies have done a great job of controlling the information and making sure they don't feel like they have anywhere they can go or anyone they can speak out to. In doing that, we need people to stand up as our voice. So when you hear the stories of patients coming in and saying, I couldn't get my medications at the pharmacy, the line was too long, the store was closed, there wasn't a pharmacist on staff, that's happened a lot lately, those patients are not getting their medications when they leave, they're going to readmit. This is going to impact our healthcare, our inpatient pharmacists and our healthcare you know, um, systems greatly with those reimbursement rates. So please, 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 if you can help your patient, if you hear these stories, we need them reported to the Board of Pharmacy. We need them reported to the legislators. There's lots of resist bot, text apps, those sort of things. If you see them online, grab a hold of them and send in those stories because that's the only way this is going to change. Wow, and thanks so much for all the advocacy that you've done um, as part as a staff pharmacist and community pharmacist yourself for um, community pharmacies and community pharmacists. And you are very humble and would let me talk about all of the um, fantastic things that you've done during your career. So um, per your request, I will not talk about all of your many accolades, but I just wanna thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your perspective because you do have extensive experience in the community space um, and have been, a great advocate for community pharmacists and community pharmacies everywhere. So thanks for joining me today. Rachel, you guys do a great job and keep, keep up all the good work. Thank you. And thank you listeners for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speaker has been Jennifer Morrow. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Gesto, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by myself and Jillian Hayes. It was edited by Carrie McCracken, Emily Kirkpatrick, and Kate Desir. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafonte. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. Mm -hmm.